Hey Coconuts, recently there's been quite a lot of discussion about Chinese stocks and it is predominantly dominated by the Western media so we had to jump in to add our spin. We will be dedicating this week and next week's shows for this. What you'll be hearing today will be from our live session a week ago so next time join our live session, yeah? <laughs> Where we discuss the big names like Alibaba and Tencent, how their business is getting affected by the new legislation and discuss will they be able to continue to dominate? Whether you're a single stock investor or an ETF investor or your portfolio has China tech somehow, you should listen. These companies form big parts of these funds and we will also answer many questions from our China construction, finance sector to understanding how politics play a big part in business in China. I'm sure you'll benefit. Welcome back. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to another Chills with TFC session. In this series, we hope to bring out interesting, relevant people to learn better from various perspectives. Life is not always about learning from people that you already agree with. Perspectives shape around the thinker. So in our pursuit of the life we love while managing our finances well, our guest for today is a popular, popular stock investing blogger. I think it's a little bit insult to call him a blogger. I would call him an independent analyst and a founder of a fund that claims to have gained 276% returns on capital since inception in 2017. Data on the website, yeah, you can go and check. More importantly, they both are fundamental investors which focuses on the business at the core of understanding a stock. So I'm happy to introduce you to Thomas Straw from SteadyCompounding.com and Eugene Ng from Vision Capital. Two friends joining us today. So yes, Thomas from Steady Compounding and Eugene from Vision Capital. And we're going to talk about, you know, how... Like, should you still invest in Chinese stocks today? I think a lot of things have gone on. A lot of things are happening. So, do you guys want to start by introducing yourself? Yeah, man. So, um, my second time here. Happy to be here. I'm Thomas, uh, right at steadycompounding.com full-time. Um, I mainly write about investing topics and a lot of deep dives on businesses in the US and in China. Thanks a lot, Reggie. Uh, my name is Eugene. Uh, I, I basically run Vision Capital, which is my own own fund, uh, largely on public equities. So we I invest over eighty companies, uh, and it's been about close to five years now. I've uh, been um, outperforming the market every year, and I'm hoping that uh, we will continue to do so as well. Uh, I also am an angel and early stage investor as well. So uh, that's that's run by Vision Capital Ventures, which I uh, invest in about uh, slightly over forty startups. So something that investing is a space that is true true to me. Uh, wrote a book actually called Vision Investing, basically thinking that any individual investor can also beat the market. Really? Wait, wait. I, I want to I wanna clarify on that one-liner of like every average investor, the retail investor can beat the market. What, what, is, the, what is the basis of that thought to share? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, in, in investing, right, fundamentally, we are, are looking at it very differently. And it's the way we can basically change, try to change the way we invest and to shift all the odds of success in our favor. Uh, and by dramatically doing it, you can actually achieve it. So I think when I set out to write in the book, it was to actually do a one-man quest to kind of actually prove to the world that if I can do it, so can you. So I think that was really the case. So I think the book really highlights uh, a very methodical process of which how we find winners, uh, the winners that keep winning, 
uh, and hopefully, you know, um, continue to beat the market over over the very very long run, as as Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger always say. Okay, another Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger fan. Thomas also a very big. <laughs> yeah, Charlie, you can see on my Charlie shelf, Munger, right? <laughs> Warren Buffett fan. Yes, I can see you know on his shelf, on his blog, and all that jazz. So okay, we can we can have a chat another time. Eugene should come on our chills with TFC session. Uh, Ernie, do note, uh, shout out to him. <laughs> we can continue the production from there. But specifically for today, everybody tune in to try to figure out the Chinese markets, right? Because recently there's been a whole slew of uh, regulation, but it's actually not that recent. It's been a while, right? So all the way from. Um, Alibaba with the whole Alipay uh, saga, uh, the end financial saga, or oh, entity, uh, Tencent, everybody kena, right? So it's like a lot of big big tech players have have uh, gotten this situation and also the ad tech reform, right? So I just want to, before we go deep into discussing specifics, I want to see uh, if you guys can share with us your read on all these situations with all these regulations and all that jazz. Yeah, so when investing in China, right, um, the government is always part of the ecosystem. So we, we not only must select like really, really good companies, we also have to take the government into account. And this is where like um, there's, a, there's a guidance um, which I like to use, which was issued back uh, in 1980 by Tan Xiaoping. Uh, it's a three-point framework. So there are three questions investors need to ask um, when assessing whether to invest in Chinese companies. Number one is whether they help to boost productivity. Number two is whether they help to boost China's national strength. And number three, whether they improve the well-being of the people. And you see a lot of these regulations coming in hard on point number three. Do they really improve the well-being of the people or not? So when investing during this heavy pullback, um, I'm a net buyer um, in, in certain pockets of uh, the company. So, so like when you, when you look at the edutech company, the issue there is a lot of the edutech companies were um, increasing a lot of the education costs for China. And you see this problem being highlighted by the Communist Party several times since 2018. Like the government keep highlighting that the cost of education is becoming too high. Teachers is not teaching core curriculum during normal school hours. They want to teach it after school hours as tuition in order to make more money. <laughs> and when they start taking VC money and investors' money, they start chasing after a lot of this um, very strong marketing to make parents FOMO. And um, in tier one city, like if you want to put your children through the top education, you know um, there are a lot of estimates that suggest it costs more than four hundred thousand US dollar um, for all, for them to graduate or all, all the way until university. So. Like, um, I was talking to Eugene about this also, like the, on the edutech industry. Um, a lot of these companies are actually trading below cash on their balance sheet. Meaning like if you were to liquidate the company today um, and you sell off everything, you just take the cash, you would still make money as an investor. But to me, um, this is almost like trying to pick a dollar from the train track. You know, it's super dangerous because I have, I have no idea what the Chinese government will want to do there, but rather I would prefer to pick in pockets whereby it's more aligned with the government intention. So boosting domestic consumption has always been one of the key um, themes that outlined by the Chinese government. So when it comes to buying e-commerce companies, um, the ideal spot to pick, right, uh, which I think Eugene has an investment here also, which is uh, like, for example, JD.com. If you look at the shareholder letters, right, they are always talking uh, about how they want to benefit everyone in the ecosystem, their employees, the suppliers, the customers. And during this COVID-19 period, right, you see the government praising JD.com a lot. 
because they really help push through the supply chain. Their logistic system is like the best in China. And the most recent letter, they went ahead and automatically raised the salary of a lot of their employees. I'm not talking about senior management here. It's uh, really the ground employee. And you can see a lot of, um, if you hang out on WeChat ecosystem, uh, often like me, you see their employees getting a lot of perks. The ground level employees, like they will give them iPhones, you know. Um, if you work at JD.com for more than five years, they'll give you a room to yourself, um, you know, because a lot of the delivery personnel, logistics, um, they are hired from tier three, tier four into the tier one cities. Um, so when you're young, it's okay to share room, but as you grow older, you want to start a family, they will give you a room <laughs> to yourself. So yeah, so this is what he said, Richard mm. Liu. So like, um, you need to have dignity, which is why I'm giving a room. So, so you want to try and get behind management um, who is able to do right without the Chinese government having to come in and interfere. Yeah, I, I think I broadly agree, agree a lot with what Thomas has, has said. I think the, the way to think about this really is... It's a, it's a very specific sector specific. I think if you think about edutech, right? I think they've they've gone in, in a way that has actually, I would say, changed the way of how how kids are now studying. I think so. I think they were very specific in terms of the government for that particular sector. I don't think it should be taken in a way to to generalize, you know, across all all Chinese companies. And I think after a, a large sell off, the government has actually come down through a morning with with the banks and actually came decided to clarify that. So I think that, that's very, very important to, to, to differentiate. And as Thomas has said, right, I think if you look at the Chinese government, they, they're not trying to clamp down on everything. They're not trying to clamp down on all the largest companies. I think more importantly, they're trying to clamp down where they see that, you know, it's not making the society uh, better. So I think that's really where the case. So I think it, it's not to say that, you know, we don't invest in China, but I think more importantly, you need to size the risk correctly, right? Uh, you, you, have, you are investing in a country where, one single action like this, right, for the for the for the editor, you can totally change it, um, and and move it totally public, right. I think that 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 is ex extremely crucial. So portfolio sizing has to be extremely important. You you can't go too big a single position or even on an aggregate position on a country level basis. I think that's extremely key. Investing in the right type of companies as well. I think in edutech itself, it is very interesting because you look at it itself. It's actually a bit of a pseudo public good, right, in education. But um, because of the way uh, the corporates have, have done this, and this, they have actually made it almost become a private good. Now, when it becomes something that becomes too expensive and, and people spend, start spending too many hours on it, it, it has larger society, societal complications around it. And I think that's where the government had to clamp down. Now, if I look, at, look back at some of the more specific um, investments around China, I think you really got to be just thinking from that lens as well, making sure that whatever they're doing, they're not taking too much profits I think China is, is coming to a, it has never been in, in the new world, right? Where they started to have more monopolies, they're making more, more, more profits than ever before. I think the China government themselves are also trying to get their head around it, right? We have to, we have to kind of control, but we can't control it all, right? These guys are, are, are the ones that are really creating the innovation. If you think about it, you know, your Alibabas, your JD, your, your Baidu, they have actually le leapfrogged China into, into innovation, even comparable with the US, right? So to totally restrict back all of everything, it would provide a, a large setback to China. So I don't, I don't think the Chinese government is intentionally wanting to do that. They just want to make sure that, you know, um, we want to do what's right and, and, and set it up for the long term. So I think that's, that's a very, very, um, you got to think about it really from that perspective. 
Yeah, I, I think last last week in our geek uh, in our market updates, we talked a little bit about this whole ad tech thing. You know, with the whole Xue Chi Fang. I think a lot of people that you don't understand if you don't understand China, you don't understand that uh, there's actually a label called Xue Chi Fang, which means you know houses that are near schools are uh, near good schools. Okay, so if, if it has gone to such a social level where people actually buy properties, you know, specifically near to the school and there's a whole ecosystem, much of the whole Holland village, right, convert into education, like private education space, you know, and then everybody live around like, like Farrow Road, you know, just to get to Nanyang Primary. Right? So that, that's the idea. And uh, it's wild, it's crazy, and uh, it's a much bigger social implication. So I think that, that discussion in the ad, tech space is not so much focused on ed tech, but the whole broader education reform, right? But I want to dig deeper a little bit into what Thomas uh, was saying, right? So uh, the, the, the government is part of the ecosystem. Could you kind of, you know, help us understand a little bit more? What do you mean by the government is also part of the ecosystem? So the Chinese government has also mentioned this a few times. Uh, it is not the richest who have the power. It is not the most popular person who have power. It is always the government who have the power Right. So, so in China, um, every company's conversation, right, you must include the government inside. You, you cannot exclude them. So when you see companies like TT, they were, they were directly ordered by the government to not IPO and they just went ahead uh, regardless, right? Then, then that's where they saw their app removed from the app store entirely, right? New users cannot sign up, new drivers, you, you can't sign up also. So when, when investing in China, it's important to think from um, the government viewpoint. And the government is actually pretty transparent about this. Every five years, they will come together for two days and then um, have a very intensive meeting, set out their KPI, what they want to achieve for the next five years. And they call this the five-year plan. So when, when investing in China, it's important to read through this five-year plan. And one of the key things they outlined in the latest five-year plan was rising cost of starting a family due to aging population is becoming quite a serious problem in China. So when the cost of starting family, right, um, they specifically spell out two things. One is education and second is property prices. Uh, like you correctly mentioned just now, in order to get into a good school, people have to stay uh, near these good schools. And so you see a lot of these property prices coming on. So, so you can see that the Chinese government in the past few days is also regulating hard in the property sector. And, and these are also investments which I would typically avoid because it's directly against uh, what the government is trying to do, which is trying to promote more people to start a family. Uh, and rising family costs is one of the main deterrent they see. So they see this as enemy number one. And they are going to try and flatten, flatten this, um, these two industries. Not in the sense they want to destroy it, but it's really for the social yeah, it's really to make sure that um, don't just blindly chase after profits. Um, you have to look after the country as a whole as well. Mm. So I, I, I want to clarify what, I, what I'm hearing from you is that on top of the whole education reform, you think that based on their five-year plan, they're also going to come in to regulate on property property prices and property Yeah, I, I think um, they have already started in some of the provinces. They have already started to clamp down on several of the... I think Hangzhou might be one of them um, and a few others. So I, I think that's really the, where they are going to be next. It, it's not just limited to property developers in China. I think a few of our Singapore developers have quite substantial investments there as well. So I'll be careful about those. <coughs> Capital N, is it? I think CDL also <laughs> has quite a few investments there. Yeah. CDL. 
Okay, so so in that sense, you'll be concerned about property developers in China, not specifically just Chinese developments. Yeah, as long as um, they have heavy investment in China, a lot of the Hong Kong developers also have very heavy investments in China when it comes to residential property. Um, and, and that's where I would be slightly more concerned. But I want to kind of zoom into a little bit of the what you said in 1980s, right? Teng Xiaoping came in and said that you must help the country, you know, uh, strengthen the economy, strengthen the social, society, etc. Some of the, the major pointers, right? How important is it as an investor to try to understand the political dynamics in China? Okay, because um, for everybody that don't know, I, I don't claim that I know, but I do know that uh, C is not with the same camp as Teng. Right? So Teng and Hu, they are the same camp. They, and C is with Mao. Right? So C has a very different view of uh, how society should be structured and you see a lot of the whole rolling back of uh, freedom and uh, more democracy, more capitalistic leanings under his rule. Right? So um, understanding companies are really quite complicated. Now you need to understand you know, like politics and all that jazz. Right? So I want to I dig a little bit into your head about how C's, how C's outlook is going to be like and how important is it uh, for investors trying to look at China to understand its politics and its political landscape? Yeah, so um, knowing that is definitely important. And, and when you look at what he has done since he has come to power, he clamped down on corruption um, and he really tried to push technological advances in, in China. So, And you see one recurring theme constantly being highlighted. Um, and since 2018, you look at the big tech players, they have been echoing this. They are going heavy into industrial technology. So when you look at the past decade, right, China has always been extremely strong in consumer internet meaning your e-commerce, um, your WeChat and all that kind of stuff, consumer-facing product. But they haven't been particularly strong when it comes to coming up with SaaS um, companies or their cloud is still pretty nascent. Um, so the government mentioned like um, domestic consumption is good, but things like Alibaba 11.11 is not going to make the country better. What's going to make the country really better is um, coming up with business products your industrial internet, whereby you make it more accessible for businesses to get loans, to do business, uh, your CRM products. That's where we really want to see. And so you see in the latest Alibaba letter, um, which was published, I think, last week, just last week, um, they highlighted their pivot into industrial uh, internet pretty heavily. In 2018, uh, Tencent has already started pivoting into industrial internet and they have launched, they have actually released a book last year as well on their strategies in the industrial internet. Yeah, so manufacturing is one of the key things they want to maintain. So, so it's, they are not going to adopt the direction US has adopted. So US went from manufacturing to, you know, very strong financial hub, very strong technology. So they say while those growth are good, they don't see um, being a financial hub although it can drive very strong growth, it's not a very high quality growth. For China, national security is number one. So they still want to maintain the most dominant manufacturing hub of the world. And they are looking closely at uh, manufacturing as a percentage of GDP. They really want to try and increase that ratio. Um, but the industrial internet is a bit more than um, just manufacturing. They are also looking um, at really improving business productivity. Because right now, a lot of companies are actually um, facing talent crunch. You, you see like uh, manpower costs slowly creeping up in China. Things are no longer as cheap as it used to be. So the only way to keep growing um, while 
controlling the rising labor cost is really to improve your productivity. Yeah, I, I, th- I think for, for, for China, right, when we're looking at this space, we really got to think about what, what the Chinese government is trying to do. Ultimately, it has to balance in terms of, of what innovation is. If you try to clamp down on everything, innovation is not going not gonna to happen. So I think the Chinese government is trying to have the split and trying to make sure that they're trying to glide innovation towards a direction where it's, it's towards the end goal, which they want, right? Which they laid out in all their, their, their five-year plans and, and, and everything that, that Thomas has, has shared a little bit. So I think if you move along that path, right? You have to be really finding companies that are just along, along that same glide and, and, and moving along that same path. If they are, tend to be... Um, for example, heavily in, in, in a part where in a society where it can cause a lot of harm, then we just need to be cognizant of that. And, and, and they might sometimes come in and clamp down. And we just really got to be cognizant of that. But I want to just add one point on this for China, right? If you think about it in terms of technology, I think where China knows they're lagging behind is the semiconductor uh, side of, of things. So if you really think about it, right, they don't have a TSMC equivalent. They, they, you know, China themselves, they've been trying to go up the semiconductor space. And to be honest, they have been lagging. Right? And we're trying to invest a lot of technology. A lot of this innovation doesn't come overnight. It comes massively and takes a lot of time. And they know they're, they know they're really, really behind it, right? And TSMC is all the cloud. Um, but it, it is, so I think it's going to be a very interesting space because as the world becomes more 5G, you know, we're going to have the, industrial, the next industrial revolution. This is going to be a very, very interesting space. Whoever owns the semiconductors We'll own, we'll own the entire, we'll own the, we'll own the, the, next, the, next, the next set of, of, of technology. Really? Yes. I, I think it's extremely crucial. Uh, I think that's why they're trying to develop that and, and trying to build, build their, their own superiority. superiority so I think um, the next couple of years will be really interesting whether can they actually um, you know, uh, get, get that thrown and, and try to build it. If not, your heavy reliance will always be on the US, on, on, on your TSMCs and the rest, right? And how, how long can you keep doing that? Yes, and TSMC has already publicly put in their investor statement that they will not put uh, major technologies in China. <laughs> so they are a Taiwan company, right? So um, like it or not, uh, most of their most elite uh, development uh, or production lines are all in Taiwan and some in the US, uh, not so much in China specifically. So I, I think during the COVID period, it already highlighted a lot of these things, right? How much money you have is one thing. Uh, what can you actually produce is another thing, right? So <laughs> I, th- I think there is a, a lot of discussion in this whole part of growing production capacity, um, even from a country level, right? So we do have a lot of questions in the comment section. I want to move into some of them. And Geraldine specifically asked, uh, why is manufacturing so important to China? All right. So I think everybody of us have some thoughts. Uh, I, w- I want to kind of let you guys expound on why is manufacturing important and how, how do we look at this thing? Yeah, so when it comes to manufacturing, um, especially during this COVID period, you can see um, US having problem getting mass supplies um, or even the oxygen tank supply. And, and you really see when, when the economy starts to shut down, um, then you start to see the problem of outsourcing everything overseas to China because China is the factory of the entire world. And People in renovation business will know this. Um, last year during March, um, everything has to be delayed because nothing is coming out from China. And so when, as a country, you are that reliant on another country uh, for, for this capability, right? Then it's really going to threaten um, your country's security or in, in events like this, you know, you're, you're just not able to ramp up sufficient production in time. So it's also the, the danger of outsourcing and um, putting all your businesses to just-in-time production. 
Yeah, if I can add on this point, I think what Thomas is, is saying is, is is very very pertinent. I, I think the, when we had moved a couple of years ago, we actually moved into just in time. We moved into outsourcing, right? Where everyone uses their, every country uses their own competitive advantage to try to produce a particular good. And which, which with that, we bring down the cost of, of the overall the goods, right? And we have seen inflation come down because cost of goods have just come off. But what happens, I think, with, with COVID and especially the geopolitical tensions, is start to realize that we might actually be shifting back, uh, you know, a lot of the manufacturing and production back into in-country, where, where possible and try to secure more of that, right? We can have more of your food supply in country, more of your production within the country. And I think China is cognizant of that because when they have heavy reliance, for example, on the semiconductors and a lot of parts, you know, are dependent on the US. They, they can't make it and, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to significantly affect them. So if I think about it, manufacturing, China has really moved from, I would say, low-level manufacturing to kind of mid-level and they're actually moving towards higher level, right? And, and now you see more of this manufacturing started to move towards um, the likes of Vietnam and, and all, right? So they are going to move higher and higher end, and, and eventually it, it's, it's, about GD, it's about GDP and about, uh, about productivity, right? The higher and the higher end and the more value add goods that you produce, the more economic uh, value that you add to the, to the country, uh, the country becomes prosperous, people become wealthier, they spend more, and the whole cycle goes, right? So I think that's, that's one route to bring economic prosperity. I think, I think the, the government is, is fully aware of it, and, and they're just trying to build that next... Uh, the next wave of, of economic uh, progress. Yeah, I, w- I want to add that uh, China built their own space station, just saying. Right? So uh, the US and Russia don't want to play with China. China was like, okay, never mind. I built my own space station. So China has their own space station and they're building their own GPS system. They have a whole, whole satellite. And some of the US uh, reports are coming out saying that China is even potentially doing weapons, you know, space weapons to block GPS signals from the US. So... Um, all that being said, I think China is a force to to uh, grapple with. Like it's not it's not gonna it's not gonna di- disappear with all these jazz, uh, but definitely a lot of uh, ongoing discussions. But in, I think summing up the first phase of the discussion, what what I could draw out some of the major points is that um, China is a centrally planned economy with markets. Okay, it's not a market economy. Ah, uh. it's very different. Okay, so it's not market driven. It's centrally planned. The government say I want to do all these things, and then you go and do it. Right? So it's essentially playing economy with markets. So you need to understand this as a fundamental to then choose management that can work with this uh, sector and recognize that they are not out to kill their economy. Okay? They just want to kill some things that to them is a pimple, to them is an ulcer. Okay? They think it's not good, they will cut. Right? So be cognizant about that lah, fundamentally. Is there any other things that we want to add on this uh, main frame? Because I think there are a lot of discussions in the comment section that is very specific, specific companies, specific sector, and I want to pull some of them out. So, any things to add, Thomas and Eugene, on this main frame of discussion? No, I think we are, I'm good. Yeah, I'm good too. Okay, great. So we got a lot of uh, questions in in the comment section. Please drop your questions in the comment section. We're gonna pull out. Okay, the the simplest one. <laughs> <laughs> everybody, everybody wants stock tips on. Okay, but by the way, I just want to put it out here that this is uh, for entertainment, education purposes only. It's not any recommendation. Please look for your licensed professional. Okay, but since someone asked, is Tencent a buy or sell to you guys? I think it's a fair question. Recently, there's also a little bit of the the whole Tencent music regulation and all that all that jazz. Yeah, so I, I think maybe maybe we can we can give um a bit of our thoughts on what the regulations mean for Tencent. So so there are a few key regulations that so the, the music is one thing, um, but thankfully the music uh, doesn't contribute much 
as much. It's like a drop in ocean for Tencent. So losing the exclusive rights is not really an issue. Um, but what we need to keep a lookout on is the government um, asking Tencent to do two things. One is you have to remove your wall garden. And the second thing is you need to get um, minus gaming in check. So um, the first one, removing the wall garden. What, what do I mean by this? So um, back in the early 2010s, I think, Alibaba was the first one to block Tencent off its platform, meaning you can no longer use WeChat Pay on Alibaba's platform. Then subsequently, uh, Tencent blocked Alibaba, meaning like if you're on WeChat, which is the equivalent of WhatsApp, you try and put a Taobao link, it will just disappear. It will not appear at all. So this is this is what I mean by wall garden. They they will just they will just eradicate competition like this. You copy paste, nothing will happen. Yeah. Then um, subsequently, WeChat um, blocked out ByteDance, which is our TikTok. So there are, there are, there's there's one important thing to note that for Tencent, when you are buying Tencent, you are almost like buying a tech ETF uh, in China because they are investing in so many companies, not just in China but in US as well. Like they own the key gaming companies in US, um, and when you are reinforcing them to remove Wall Garden, right? Um, the one concern I have is can Tencent still gain the priority in investing in all these companies? So the whole reason why they are able to be angel investing, the angel investor, or they are able to buy large pieces of a lot of companies is because um, they are quite gangster. Meaning like if you don't sell your company to me, you don't let me take a large chunk, right? I'm going to get you off WeChat. And WeChat, it is not just a messaging app. It is also an app store. Most applications run on WeChat mini programs. Meaning like, let's say if I were to go to China, I, I want to, you know, use um, Meituan. You, you can launch it on WeChat. You don't have to uh, install a separate app. I want to, you know, book movie tickets. There's going to be another separate app within WeChat mini program for you to do so. So WeChat mini program is, you can think of it as the Apple Store and uh, Google Play Store together. And you think about them having this amount of power. Uh, so back, back then, a lot of companies will say like, if I don't take Tencent money, if I don't let them become a major investor, um, it's one thing that I lose the money. It's second thing that I'm not going to get any traffic. Because WeChat, um, if we look at marketing terms, right, they are top of the funnel. That's where all the, all the discovery happens. And if WeChat is no longer able to sustain this wall garden, right? Um, my primary concern would be whether this would be detrimental to their future investing capabilities. Um, the second thing about gaming. So this morning, um, they started to come out and say gaming is what spiritual opium, right? <laughs> um, and, and they want to further limit um, gaming. But um, so, so the concern here mainly comes with um, minors gaming, people under 18 years old, right? And WeChat has been working very closely with the Chinese government since 2018 um, on managing this. Uh, they have actually... So the first thing they did, right, was they blocked out minors from playing all the accounts. But the problem is a lot of these minors were staying with their grandparents and, you know, grandparents will just give in to their grandchildren. They, give, they will give their accounts, their identification card and all that, and then they will register an account under their grandparents' name. So this year, Tencent actually launched a Midnight Petrol, this AI application whereby if you will play game, right, 
your phone camera, your front camera will look at your face. And if they think that you're 18 years old, they are going to just shut off your phone. So between 10 p.m. to 8 a.m., you are not able to play a game. Um, is this a problem to Tencent? So right now, I, I think the amount of hours minors can play for under 12 is one hour a day. And for under 18, it is about two to three hours a day. So this is the orders by the government. Um, is that a concern? Um, so you see the market swing down by about 10% today. But when you look at the financial report of Tencent, right, um, minors under 18 only account for um, 6% of China's gaming revenue. This is not even taking into account the global gaming revenue because Tencent game is big, not just in China. It's big globally. When you look at games like PUBG and, and all that, you know, they, they are, they, I think they have three out of the top 10, top 10 games of the world and they command majority of the gaming revenue collected by the entire world. Um, so I, I see the... I see market as overreacting um, to this morning's news. Yeah. Yeah. For me, for Tencent, I think if you think about it right now, the, the market cap is probably around 600 billion. Uh, since they're probably trading around, uh, I would say, uh, from, from a sales perspective, it's probably around just slightly under 8x, 8 times sales. And if you think about it for a company whose net income margins are 35%, right? In the world, there are probably less than 20 companies that have a net income margin of 25%. This, this speaks to the very high quality of the company itself, right? And it has been, it has been a steady growing compounder of, I would say, 20, 20, to 20, 20 to 20 to 30% per year for the last five, five plus years or so, right, even. And, and I, I guess the fundamental trick is that if you go back down to Tencent, um, and comp it compresses of, of a fair bit of businesses, right? Which is you have your gaming, you have your advertising, and you have your, your fintech, your payments. I think fintech and payments is, is helping your society become better because it's, it's making e-payments easier. So I think that's, that's fine. Uh, online advertising is probably along the same lines. You, can, you might argue different, different variations. But I think the only tricky business really is the gaming business is what Thomas has said. To push it this way, right? If everyone were to spend their time gaming, it's going to be very detrimental for, you know, for the society as a whole. But sometimes I, I like to think about it as, as gaming, as, as another one of my mentors, my investors actually shared with me, right? Sometimes that, you know, Instead of watching a movie, instead of resting, reading a book, I just want to play a game. It's, it's my leisure time, right? I think that there's no balance that says that no, I don't play, don't totally go no, no gaming, or you go to a lot of gaming, right? Such that, you know, that, that whole country dwells into zero productivity. I think that, that balance is somewhere in between. And I think that that's what they kind of need to find that balance with. And it probably need to, 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 to use, right? So I think Tencent is ultimately using the cash cow, the gaming business, and trying to expand in, into so many other, other, other parallels. I think because of the operating leverage, they can they can do that, and I think they've been one of the I would say the most active, uh, you know, uh, VCs out there and early stage investors investing in, in so many companies um, that I see as well. And I think that, that that's a very attractive space that gives them a lot of optionality to kind of bring them to the Tencent arm uh, and and help to spread their wings, right? And makes things make makes things easier for them. So at at, th at this stage, it is a very high quality company. Um, they're all, obviously always concerns, you know, of of, of, of the video gaming. It's probably, I would say, um, slightly under, what, 50% of, of, of total revenues. But I, I think if you broadly think about it, it, it is a very solid, it is a very, very solid business, right? I, I, I own it myself, uh, Tencent, uh, and I'm still holding it. I've never sold it. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I mean, would I add, add, would I add at current levels? 
maybe. But would I buy a lot of uh, buy a lot of it? No, uh, because um, I think I have to keep my China uh, exposure as part of my portfolio uh, fairly 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 nuanced in terms of uh, I want to cap it. So I think that's that's how I think about Tencent, right? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, 树大招风, uh, by the way, for all of you that are listening, uh, in Mandarin just means that if your tree is very big, right, you, you can get the wind. Uh. So as long as your company is huge, right, uh, you tend to be regulated by by the government and uh, competitors. They will look at you and all that jazz. But uh, personally, I want to add that when I was living in China, uh, WeChat was the only communication platform and uh, everything can be done through WeChat. So you can, it's like Instagram plus uh, WhatsApp plus, uh, you never leave the app. Okay, you can go out with just WeChat. You can delete all other apps. You will still survive in China, right? So that is how that's how crazy uh, WeChat is beyond just uh, the whole gaming business. And I think this is important because a lot of people underestimate platforms. Uh, platforms can spin out a lot of new businesses as an extension, right? So like what Thomas has said, it's the top of the funnel. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't want to over promote Tencent and and all that shit. But the fundamentals are strong. I think I think uh, we can all come to agree. So I think that's um, our review of uh, Tencent specifically. I think other people also want to know about the big, the other big giant. Okay, so it's like you talk about Tencent, you cannot talk, don't talk about Alibaba. You know, they are like frenemies kind of thing. So the, what is your take on Alibaba, which, you know, dominates the other half of China's tech, la, <laughs> essentially. It's like Tong Kong and Si Kong. La, you know? So yes. Yeah, I think in, in Alibaba it is very interesting, right? Because I think in the first part when you have a, a leader who started becoming, uh, I think too too big for too big too big for himself, and I think that became a problem for the Chinese government. I think it's always it's always that case, right? They want to make sure that you know everyone. I can let you make money, but you know you got to be just do it right, right, and not not be too sure of it. I think I think clearly they were um, finding someone very prominent and to 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 make an example. Of. I think that 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 is that is very clear, right? Um, I think everyone also more or less got the idea, and I think they all stood kind of in line, right? Uh, if you look at if you look at Alibaba, it's over two hundred fifty thousand employees. It's a very large part of Chinese economy. Every every part if you think about delivery, you know, goes goes there, right? And and it, without Alibaba, uh, without the likes of JD or Meituan, you know, the economy would not have survived past COVID. So I think the Chinese government realized the power, the importance of, of Alibaba, and they've been driving driving a lot of innovation. A lot of innovation in in China, right? So for them to totally clamp down on Alibaba, I think that's not not going not going to be the case. Uh, are they going to be regulated? I would say yes. Uh, the e-commerce business is is a space where you know I think they they will they, they're going to uh, change change a fair bit. But I think the e-commerce business is still going to be very very profitable. I think you know China. Some some might say China's e-commerce penetration is very high, but I say it can go always go higher. Right? I think. I mean, the way I do try to think about it is, I think most e-commerce penetration will probably hit probably I'll say a range between sixty to eighty percent uh, between each country in the next five, ten, fifteen years. I think that's where I was I see the bulk of our buying going to be. So I think there's still a lot of room, and it's going to take many, many years to to continue to grow beyond the one p on on beyond on three p side, which you know which Alibaba um, uh, is, is is extremely uh, focused on. 
I think there are going to be um, a lot of monetization of the new businesses which they are, which, they are, which they have been trying to grow. Uh, of course, the payment space is a bit tricky with 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 with, and with um, Alipay, I think, and and financial. Uh, that was obviously very tricky because the business itself was was a was a wonderful business with a lot of optionality, because it was platform. It was a lot of platform bringing a lot of. It's like an aggregator, right? Literally, because you have one platform serving all the customers, and after that, you sell down all the risk. Whether it be insurance, be investments, you know, and you just you just get a cut. You're literally like a broker. So it was a great platform, but I think obviously they've been trying to curtail um, the the risk associated with it. But I think the Chinese government know, right? It's a distribution problem. Uh, the, the you have platforms that can bring the distribution and ultimately create positive economic value. That I think that's going to be the case. So you know, I I'm. I'm still. I've been holding Baba for more than four years. It, it's, it's still a, it's still a, a, a holding for me. It's not. I have no. I have no issues. Even though it's gone down along, along with some of the Chinese stocks, I have, I have totally no issues because I know that they do. They do come down with time. Structurally, do I see it uh, disappearing? I don't think so. <laughs> um, but I, I, I will still continue to always, you know, keep keep a watchful eyes on, on things. Um, and I think that's that's going to be very interesting uh, on on this space as well. I want to dig into your discussion earlier a little bit more about uh, capping your Chinese exposure. Because like, like I think we all can agree that uh, these two companies, specifically Alibaba and Tencent, fundamentally they are huge and strong and cash flow doing very well and all that jazz. But you did say that you want to cap your Chinese exposure to manage your risk, right? So can you kind of expound uh, on that a little bit about uh, how are you envisioning that, that risk management process? Yeah, I mean, would I want... For example, any of the Chinese stocks to have a twenty percent of my portfolio, and when they fall fifty percent, I get wiped out ten percent. I I don't think that's going to be the case for me. So I think numbers it varies from from individual to individual. Uh, I, for me, I think the number is is probably not twenty percent. It's probably significantly lower. Uh, it, it's a number ultimately that I have to be comfortable with, that I can sleep with, right? If, even if they drop fifty percent, I I have no I have no qualms, right? You know, Tencent has fallen more than fifty percent. Baba is probably you know midway through. <laughs> I have no I have no qualms and I I and I, I, I sleep very well. I think that's most important. It's ultimately, you know, what's your sleep score? Are you fine with that? Uh, the way I think about it is it's it's a bad it's a balance, it's a basket. I own only four four Chinese stocks, um, Baba, Tencent, Meituan, and JD. I, I like to own the, the larger ones because the larger ones are also the more safer ones, in, in my opinion. Uh, and also the ones that are more critical uh, in terms of the services they're providing. So I'm very selective in terms of the the services. I, I didn't choose education tech for, for a particular reason as well. Um, and, and all those. So I think that's why you know I never got a chance to even to even go to that space. So I think I'm finding those ones that are they're structurally addressing a very, very big market. Uh, the government's unlikely to totally clamp them out fully because they know they're still gonna be around. Uh, but yet I'm cognizant of the fact that you know we we just have to be, be cognizant. So would I want China to be say 20% of my exposure? I mean no, I don't think so. It's probably closer. It's probably under ten percent, for example, for my portfolio, and it's something that uh, a risk that I'm very. It's, it's an exposure that I'm very very comfortable with. Yeah, yeah, and and I I want to dig a little bit deeper into this whole small tech, uh, big tech kind of thing because you know um I think in in the broader market uh, amongst the retail guys there's a lot of discussion about finding growth companies and and all that jazz right, but mostly right it's all in the US. So nobody really finding growth companies in in China. You know, people talk about all these big tech companies in China as though they are like small companies, like very interesting into the future, but actually they are really giants, you know, but I don't really hear discussion about like small tech in China or like upcoming smaller companies, you know, like it's not really uh, an ongoing talk, you know, uh, is, is there some, do you guys have some thoughts about that part? Like 
is is there a reason why people are not looking at it, or is there a reason why specifically you're not looking at some of these smaller companies in China? You know, unlike how people hunt for growth companies in the US. There are a few factors. One is the information flow um, among Chinese companies is not as transparent as what we see in US. But for a lot of these like really big companies like Tencent, Alibaba, Meituan, JD, um, you, you get a very transparent view of what they're trying to do. You know, they do earnings call and all of that. Um, the management is also very um, vocal about what they are trying to achieve for the company. And as investor, it's important for us to understand the businesses we are owning. Um, I agree fully with what Eugene said. The sleep score is the most important when it comes to investing, right? Your peace of mind. Um, so that you can hold through volatility. And, and the conviction level comes from how much you know the company. And when investing in China tech, um, the competition is way more brutal than in US. Um, it's, it's a lot more difficult to say, to tell which company will emerge victorious at the end of the day. So like if you were to take Meituan Tianping, um, for example, right? When they first started out um, in the Groupon space, they first started out in Groupon uh, using the Groupon business model. Um, in Singapore, you look at Grab and Uber and maybe Gojek. We think it's super competitive because they are keep they keep burning cash. And in US, you know, there's Grubhub, there's uh, Uber Eats, um, and uh, and one or two more players, four players in total. And then they think that the competition is super intense. But in China, whenever a tech company start off with a new innovation. There's about 5,000 other competitors coming after this piece of pie. Um, so the range of outcome is super wide um, when it comes to investing in China for this smaller tech. But when it comes to the platform businesses um, like our Tencent and Alibaba, these are more or less like uh, the super powerhouse. You know, in investing, we, we say like they have a super wide mode already. So, so as an investor in these companies, right, it's... Uh, um, you feel more safe because their competitive advantages are really, really strong as opposed to the smaller companies. Yeah, if I can add to that point, I think if you think about it in China, right, which are the Chinese stocks that are really available for us as public investors to invest? Are the ones that are probably listed in the US and, and they're probably quite sizable already. The ones are probably listed in Hong Kong and the ones in China are not really that accessible for us as, as retail investors. And the ones in Hong Kong, you know, are, are probably still fairly sizable, right? So you know, some of the, the, the other, the other mid-caps and stuff. But if you think about it, you, like Thomas said, right, the, in, the thing in China, because now we're in this in, internet economy, is really the, the winners tend to keep winning and they become bigger. And, and I think that, that that's, that's, a, that's a very key trend around it, right? In China is very, investing in China is very similar to investing in the US in the sense that it is a very, very large market. You have, you have a population of 1.2 billion. You get something right, you know, you're going to, be a, you're going to get, become a unicorn, really, if you get it right and you execute well, right? But, and it's similar for the US as well. But, but I think in, in China, as, as Thomas is also saying, you know, it's sometimes you don't know what books they have. As, as, as a lot of say, say that in China, you're going to kind of have two, books, two, two accounting books, right? Ones that you show, uh, you know, the, the, your auditors and one you keep, you, one, the real one that you keep behind, right? And I think the, the likes of Lucky Coffee and all this, it's, it's, it's very real. Because sometimes you really don't know. And I think it is very important for us to, to find out, right? We're not on the ground, um, un unfortunately. And we can, we can do all, all, the, all, the, all the research that we want. But sometimes we, we just don't. We just don't know. And, and, and I think that's, that's the toughest bit, uh, you know, in terms, of, in terms of getting that information flow. So that, that's why also... Uh, but it is very, very exciting. I think in China, because of such big economy and such big growth, there's a lot of opportunity. I think we just need to be very strategic about it. Um, you know, sizing our sizing our our positions accordingly. 
and and letting them you know keep keep win keep keep to keep winning and and to let them run. Yeah, when I was in China, I I went to Lucking Coffee. There was nobody. <laughs> Just say. <laughs> I was like, ah, where's my lunchtime meal, right? Now? Of course, they predominantly do delivery and all that jazz, right? But there wasn't a lot of delivery people coming in and out. I think more people uh, delivering from a Jianping store next door than lacking coffee. Anyway, just saying. So, uh, like, uh, some, some of my friends, they also pointed out this uh, thought that by the time uh, shit happens, you know already, right? Like when, when shit happens, you will know. Right? So before, before it happens, <laughs> you don't know. And um, I, I get the idea as to why a lot of people are looking at big tech in China specifically. Okay, so uh, let's move a little bit away from big tech. I think someone actually put up a question. What are your thoughts on investing in the financial and construction sector A-shares? Okay, so this is also an interesting discussion. Any thoughts, guys? No, I've actually never looked at the construction A-shares um, Yeah, so I, I mainly look at Alibaba and all the other big tech. Um, and if you are looking at the financial shares, right, um, one big concern over the years in China is that um, a lot of these financial companies, they are encouraged, similar to the edutech, they are creating FOMO um, to get parents to sign up their kids for tuition, right? A lot of these financial companies are getting people to borrow money to buy things they don't need. So um, when you look at the Alipay, right, the, the poster boy for the regulation, you must be very conscious about the financial company you are getting. So um, Huapay is a part of Alipay. And the main problem the government have with them is the way they are advertising their product. So when you look at Huapay, uh, if we direct translation into English, it's called spend. La. It's uh, ask you to spend. Um, you see a lot of advertisement that goes something like... Um, If you love your wife, you have to use Huapei to borrow money and buy this piece of diamond. If you don't get her this diamond, are you still a man? You know, so, so the advertisement goes along lines like this to really drive... Um, I'm, I'm not talking about like rich people to borrow money. It's really driving the lower income people to borrow a lot of debt to buy things they don't need. And they are able to do so at a very scary scale because the thing about end Financial is... They don't need to keep um, a minimum capital requirement. When you look at banks in Singapore, right, there's a limit to how much they can lend out. But for end financial, there was no limit because they were outsourcing all this um, lending risk to other banks. So when when investing in China, um, I generally avoid banks in China because I don't trust their accounting. Um, and and you have to really select management that you're able to believe, management that are super transparent. Apart from just accounting, you have to look at things like do they communicate to shareholders? Do they write their own shareholder letters? And from their capital allocation decisions, meaning like um, the way they spend their retained earnings shareholders' money, do they give back capital to you or not? Yeah, so these are the few things you want to look at on top of whether they improve the society as a whole. I love how everything is about improved society. Yeah, just just saying. You know, like invest in China, right? You must care about their societal progress. Okay, Eugene. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, I I don't invest in construction companies because I I like the way the way when I invest in businesses, I think about it. Some I'm looking for businesses whose revenue streams are very recurring, very predictable, and and are growing massively. And in the, in the construction space, it tends to be very one-off. You're constantly looking for deals. You're constantly trying to find. So you want to you want to you want a construction company to be 10x bigger. <laughs> They're gonna find a lot of deals. <laughs> you gotta you gotta scale it accordingly, right? Because you're in the physical world, physical world. Uh, it's not something that is easily scalable. And hence, it, as as a business itself, uh, it just rules out, and I don't touch those. 
um, in, in finance companies, if I look at it, right, if I look, if I look at the, the top four bank revenues, they'll be just growing at, I would say, a low double-digit kind of, kind of per, per year kind of growth. Uh, the way I always think about it, if your revenues are going to be growing at low double digits and your profits are probably going to grow at low double digits, assuming profit margins are going to stay the same, your stock price is going to grow at about low double digits. And for me, that doesn't meet my, my minimum, uh, you know, Kager or hurdle of, of investing and hence I don't, just don't touch this. So I think that's it's just how it weighs because typically stock prices will always follow in the very long run how profits, cash flows and revenues eventually go. And if the top line just doesn't increase that much, no, the stock price just doesn't increase as much. So, so I think uh, if I look at banks, uh, uh, that's just generally how I look at it. And I, I, we don't, I don't own any banks in my portfolio at all, uh, zero. Uh, and that's always been the case how I see it. Yeah, I think Eugene touched on a very important point there. Like when, when investing in companies, right, it's important to look for companies that have uh, recurring income or generate very high returns on capital. So similar to Eugene, I, I don't look at construction company at all and I don't look at airlines at all simply because they don't make very high returns on capital. So, so if you think of yourself as a super long-term um, investor, right, you want to invest in company that's able to consistently reinvest their earnings at super high clip. And there are several sectors who are notorious um, to not be able to achieve this. Um, construction is definitely one of them, super cyclical. And um, while you're able to make money in the short run, as a long-term investor, you're not going to make that kind of uh, life-changing wealth uh, that as investors, you should ideally be looking at. If, if I can add one point on Thomas, right? Because I think you mentioned airlines. Uh, I, I, for me, I don't invest in airlines because the way I think about it is I'm literally always uh, short an option <laughs> because if I, an airline, if you think about it, it always has to be around, I would say, occupancy rate around north of 80, 90%. Then you can make profit. And they make this amount of standard amount of profit, right? So if you think about it, they're limited up. The upside is literally kept. Like if I'm 80, you know, 90% occupancy rate, I'm going to be just well. I'm going to be doing return well on my capital. But that's the maximum I can return. But when something like COVID hits on an economic, economic uh, crisis hits, the demand just falls through the roof. And basically, it's, it is a free fall. If you think about it, they have, they have unlimited downside. And I don't like businesses that have limited top side and unlimited downside and that's why i mean i i also stay away from airlines yeah and and i think it's uh it's very good to point out that for a lot of retail investors uh, i hear this thing like oh sq won't die ma you know government will not let you die yeah won't die but it barely barely breeze okay so so it's just yeah so i, I don't th- i don't think it's best and specifically i want to add for construction i think uh the guys have pointed out uh very clearly that construction is very reliant on deal flow very high capex and very reliant on deal flow so even you look at uh, capital land recently they've also restructured their business right so they're going to privatize their construction business and just focus on the management because management business asset light high kager business right and uh they're going to privatize the whole uh deal f- construction because nothing to construct okay but anyway so so that's the idea right generally i think uh as a retail investor you want to be in spaces that you understand so if you are talking about financial or construction then uh i hope that you have superior insights when looking at these kind of companies um if not then uh, generally i will avoid these sectors specifically construction i think it's a very hard space to be in everybody is just fighting margins and uh, if you want to talk about china specific if you think uh, <laughs> politics is complicated, right? Then China construction politics is going to be even more complicated for you, 
okay, to, to try to decide who is going to get the deal, what's going to happen. You know, there's a lot of insider things going on uh, and that is the reality, okay? So um, if you guys have any other questions, please drop in the comment section and we'll pull it out. Um, if not, there's one more question here that I think will be pretty interesting because I'm uh, pretty sure most people, most of you guys have this in your portfolio. So Meituan's future. I, and I engaged with Meituan in the early days of the Groupon days. Right? So that was about five years ago I was staying in China. So yes, Meituan was amazing. Meituan Tianping was the place where I go and buy all the cheap stuff. Lah. But I know since then, things have changed. So yeah, hear your views about Meituan specifically as a company. Yeah, maybe I touch on the regulation side. So the problem um, that's confronting Meituan now is um, a few things. One is the Chinese government actually want Meituan to um, provide insurance to all these gig economy workers. So gig economy workers, we are looking at our Grab food riders, food panda, or your Grab drivers. Um, so a lot of these gig economy workers, they don't have social net and they are, the salary they are currently drawing is extremely low even by China standards. So the thing about Meituan is this, they are, they are very heavy, in, they're one of the leading food delivery platforms in China. And recently with the shutdown of TT on the App Store, right, uh, they have also gone back into right healing. Um, and the challenge is um, really trying to estimate how much, um, how much this will damage them. Because as of now, the Chinese government have not uh, exactly given an idea of uh, how much insurance they need to buy or what is the minimum amount of which you have to provide for all your riders. Um, but here is how I see this. Um, even though food delivery accounts to about 70% of Meituan's revenue, it only comes down to 20% bottom line, meaning food delivery itself is a very thin margin business. And Meituan is one, the first and the only one in the whole world that is profitable in food delivery, right? But I'm all right if they even just break even because what Meituan do is they are a super app. Not everything on Meituan must be profitable. Um, they are into groceries. They are into um, booking of movie ticket, booking of massages. They are the yacht of China, food reviews, you know. So they are really the all-in-one app in, in China when it comes to, you know, doing your day-to-day -day stuff. And booking of uh, your massages, your hotels, your airline tickets, these are where the high-margin business is. So um, when you look at the uh, booking of hotels, all this, the revenue only comes up to about 20 to 30%, but it flows down to 70% bottom line. Um, so that's really where the crown jewel of Meituan is. If you only look at the revenue composition, it might be a bit misleading. Um, but when you look at the bottom line, the amount of net profits after deducting for all the costs, uh, the majority of it actually comes from other things. And it pays well for Meituan to even just break even because food delivery, groceries, all this, even though they are low margins, they are high frequency, meaning users have to keep assessing Meituan at several times a day. And in marketing terms, right, we call that very high engagement rate services. Not profitable, but high engagement rate. And because they are so high engagement, right, the users are more likely to use them to book hotels, to book airline tickets and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm not so concerned about the increased cost for their gig economy workers as of now. Um, but I'll still be monitoring this space.
Yeah, for me, I, I totally echo uh, uh, what Thomas is saying. I think in Meituan, the way I think about it is also like the food delivery business in a way subsidizing uh, the uh, the super app for it to upsell all the other services, right? To, to give it to give an example, you look at their, their, queue, their first queue earnings. The food del- delivery business, the EBIT margins are around 5%. The, the in-store hotel travel business, the EBIT margins are around 42%. So that's eight times higher, right? And that's why they also contributed a lot more of the profit. But I think the, the I think the, the the company is aware of the slowing growth of food delivery and 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 travel. Uh, it's actually it's actually tuned down to, to I would say the, the the mid I would say mid double digit I would say 30 percent kind of numbers. And they know you know they won't be able to sustain such such valuations. And that's why I think uh, they've been actually pivoting towards community group buying, which along the lines of of Pintoto and, and because. Exactly, because you know, I think they know Pintoto is obviously the, the undisputed leader right now in community group buying, right? But I think with Meituan's platform itself, they've been investing a lot, and you can see a hit in especially the last two quarter of 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 their margins because of the of the immense amount of capex to build it. It's extremely difficult to build, but once if you get it right, uh, and 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 this kind of logistics, uh, it can actually hold on for a very very long time. And I think community group buying itself is probably you know something's positive for that for 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 long term for the economy as well. Uh, you're trying to you're trying to basically take away the whole supermarket. You're trying to bring basically the the farmers basically end end to end directly to the to the consumer, and you're trying to take out the entire you know the whole middleman chain, right? That's where the value capture is. So I think that there there are some there are some good things around it, and I think it'll be interesting. And I would I think to be honest, Meituan is probably going to start still incurring a, a lot a fair bit of losses at least for the next couple of quarters because of this very heavy reinvestment uh, in community group buying. But I think importantly as an investor, this this is what I like. If they're investing for the future, and if they get it right, and and the early matrix are, are showing that the, the very rapid growth in the community group buying matrix, and that's pointing in the right direction. So I continue to watch the couple of quarters. Uh, and if they do 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 that very well, I think it 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 will be quite transformation and bring that top line growth back to Meituan and you know, eventually, uh, you know, profits as well. Yeah, I think Eugene hit a very good point. Sorry. Yeah. So like um, community group buying, right, is one of the things that um, so the Chinese government has been saying a lot a lot of things companies cannot do, but one thing that they actually encourage companies to go after is the community group buying space. And which is why you see JD, Alibaba, Meituan, and Pintoto really doubling down on community group buying, because this um, there's there's positive value proposition. Here. There's real value proposition here, um, because it brings down prices for consumers, not just in tier one and tier two. And the government is also very um, conscious about having to to deliver all these products to tier three and tier four cities which has always been super difficult because of log- logistical needs. And community group buying, right, um, by implementing this, they are able to bring down costs of delivery such that it's able to make economical sense to hit tier 3 and tier 4. So for Meituan, um, I think so far they have been executing super well for this community group buying segment. I think they're almost uh, neck to neck with Pintoto. Yeah, so this is also one area I'm very excited about uh, when it comes to Meituan. Yeah, I want to I want to add that um, a lot of people they talk about the high margin business of all these different platforms like booking or you know or like all these like book hotel book travel and all that. Uh, for all of you that don't know this company, you should probably should take a look. You know, not a recommendation, but uh, look at C Trip, right? So Xie Cheng, Tong Cheng Chu or you know Trip.com. So essentially, it's like the booking of China and uh, Booking.com of China. 
and a lot of these uh, apps, super apps, even the super apps, uh, so WeChat or you know even Mituan, a lot of them actually take supplies from these guys. And supplies not like not like things, uh, you know. But uh, these guys, Trip.com guys, they actually consolidate all the travel, you know, uh, itineraries from like flights to cruises to hotels to experiences and all that stuff. And they are one of the largest in China. So it's some it's a company that I don't know why nobody talks about it. But when I was living there, I couldn't run away from this company. Okay, so Chinara and Xiecheng, uh, Tongcheng, they're all the same company now. They all merge Trip.com. Right, so um, something to look at. And for all of you that don't know, uh, they are a very big supply chain of travel-related kind of products. Right, so uh, interesting company, right? Take a look. Uh, and if you guys have any other questions specific to Chinese companies per se, please uh, put it in the comment section. Uh, if not, I think we are more than more than an hour in. Uh, one of my friends has a particular question, not, not very China-centric, but uh, yeah, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Has anyone been following the developments with Tether? <laughs> so since smart people gather, right? Let's talk a little bit about Tether and the theories. Heavily relying on commercial papers uh, for the likes of, from the likes of Avang, Ever, whatever, what, how do you pronounce that? Grande? Okay, whatever. Evergrande. Okay, yes. So yeah, uh, essentially, I think the discussion is, uh, what do you think of data, right? Is it is it like reliable and all that jazz? Uh, it's it's not it's not in today's discussion. But <laughs> since someone asked, you know, uh, any thoughts? Yeah, for me, for me, I can add a bit on on data. I was looking at it when I was looking at as a Bitcoin personally. So I think I was looking at data about um, about four months back, and I think to be honest, that is the biggest, the single biggest risk uh, to the cryptocurrency and specifically uh, around Bitcoin, in my opinion. Because a lot of the people have to, uh, you know, use cash to buy um, US dollar T tether, and then use that US dollar T to to buy other other cryptocurrencies. And sometimes a lot of them, a lot of it is born, born to Bitcoin. Um, the tricky bit is that a lot of the of the of the exchanges all use tether to buy. Now the, the, the fundamental thing is that it's not exactly back back one one to one as cash, right? And a lot of you look at the the data co- composition, a lot of it's in notes. And I, I've been I've been reading a fair bit of a lot of talking, right? If they're buying so much notes, how come nobody knows exactly that is the customer, right? So that those are some generally some kind of red flags. And I think the, the the tricky bit is is this, right? If the if the world goes for a a, a bank run on tether, and all everybody choose to withdraw their cash right away. And there's not enough tether, uh, it's going to massively hit the cryptocurrency market, right? I I think that is the single single biggest risk. I think right now, uh, is you know the music the music is continuing to keep keep going, but if everyone finds that you no, know, there's no confidence in tether, and everyone keeps keeps redrawing it, and eventually tether doesn't have enough dollars at the back of it, you can't keep printing enough, right? Uh, that's going to be a major major problem, and everyone starts to realize, okay, I'm stuck. I have to get out now. The whole massive selling goal happens. Uh, I think that would do uh, cryptocurrency. I would, I would say a massive blow. So I, I, I think that that is the single biggest risk, uh, you know, uh, in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, guys, uh, we have we have one more question. Can we can we take that question? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Getting a bit late. So yes. And our boomer wants to sleep. Huh? Anyway. So yes. What does investing in China's tech companies' VIE structure mean for investors? I think this is something, uh, yeah, worthy to discuss. So I actually just wrote about this on my blog. So for a lot of Chinese industry, right, when it comes to tech companies, uh, or even the education industry where they deem security to be an issue, they actually don't allow foreign investors to own shares directly. So the thing about these Chinese companies, um, if the 
if the shareholders, the, the founders, they still want to retain a big chunk of their shares, right? Um, they will have to go to New York Stock Exchange to list because that's where that's the only place whereby they can get dual listing where you look at your class A and class B shares. Um, whereby you know you can set class A to have a disproportionately higher amount of voting shares. And to do so, to circumvent this, um, what a VIE structure essentially means, when you buy a Chinese company, you don't own the company. What you own is a contract to the underlying profits, voting rights, etc. Yeah, so, so essentially, this is what a VIE structure means. You don't own the company. What you own is a contract that allows you to have the underlying profits. Yeah, the, the way I think about it is, is exactly what Thomas is saying. Right? If, if you think about it, VIE is basically you own the right to the cash flows, but you don't own the ownership itself. Uh, and if you think about it, the US and Hong Kong, there is no difference in terms of the VIE structures. It's exactly the same. But of course, Hong Kong is going to be a bit more friendlier than the US. Uh, you know, just because the US, they can any anytime turn around, right? And when they have, you know, um, political wars, they will use the VIE as a structure. I I, I think the read through for for VIE is going to it's, going, it's still going to be a major concern because you think about it from China, they've been trying to grow their economy and trying to expand and to allow internal internalization of the of the currency. So China has been try has been really open. Uh, you know, their their whole trade side current account they have really open on the capital account. They have they have been gradually opening. Uh, the, the the bond markets, but now they're trying to open the equity markets, right? They eventually have to move towards that. And the, the whole thing about the VI is that they need to they need to they themselves to actually eliminate the VI structure on their own eventually in the long term. Because they want all the Chinese companies to eventually list back in China. They want foreign capital to come back into China to be investing in RMB. Because when you have a lot of foreign capital investing in RMB, the RMB will be strong. And that's and that's and that's basically it, right? So they know long term, if you need a strong currency, everyone has to be investing investing in, in RMB. And that's what the US has actually enjoyed for a very long time. So I think the long-term path uh, is probably going to move along towards that, 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 that path. But I think it's going to take decades, years, if not decades, right? For, for this, right? I don't have a, there's no simple answer because there's so much uh, at stake. And also because these companies are so big that the market cap is going to be like case, right? I mean, even if you move to Hong Kong, it's still going to be a VIE. What's the, what's the, what's the real difference? So I mean, there is not much of a difference in, in in my opinion, and hence personally, also I have not not done that switch uh, from from US to Hong Kong. But I think we just need to be very cognizant. I think there's going to be a lot of news, a lot of regulations, a lot of noise around VIE. It's going to be used as a as a as a as, as a bargaining chip <laughs> when whenever whenever both both parties are you know are unhappy about each other, right? <laughs> so I think we just got to be very cognizant about 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 that. And again, you know, I think just just limit the risk. Most, that's most important. I think in investing is ultimately not not being wiped out. The best investors last for decades because they are not wiped out. And I think you may, effectively you have to size your risk such that you're not being wiped out. I think that's extremely extremely crucial. Maybe I share one example on when VIE went wrong. Um, it was back in like 2011, 2012. Again, this is with Alibaba when it was still a private company. So SoftBank and Yahoo were its major shareholders back then. And um, the Chinese government hinted that um, Alipay is too important for a foreign shareholder to own a stake in. And because that's... Okay, so a VIE structure essentially is against foreign shareholders. So when Alibaba um, is invested by SoftBank and Yahoo, it went into a VIE structure. And SoftBank and Yahoo were extremely pissed when they suddenly just took Alipay. So they just spin off Alipay um, without consulting SoftBank and Yahoo, who were major shareholders 
But because it's under this VIE structure, you know, they, they just um, just spin off Alipay just like that. And they just lose a crown jewel, you know, because it is the leading fintech um, services in China. So investors just have to be aware that something like this may happen. Um, it, it's not that it never happened before. Um, recently, the government have actually stepped in to say that they are not against the VIE structure. Because of all these regulations, there's a lot of chatter um, in the market. And they have come in to re reassure investors, we have nothing against VIE structure. It is really after the social impact. Yeah. Yeah, but okay. So uh, I'm a bit kiasu. Uh, if, if, if there is uh, Hong Kong, I can buy from Hong Kong, I will buy from Hong Kong. Okay, because like what Eugene said, you know, uh, I, I want to sleep well. So I don't want this kind of spat to disturb me. So as much as possible, if there's exposure in Hong Kong, I will take it from there. Uh, but eventually, I also believe that it's uh, stupid for China to have two currencies. So Hong Kong dollar will also disappear. Everything will be under one RMB. All right, but that's a whole macro discussion of exchange rates and all that. That's a very long, um, another day. Okay, for another time, right? So I think uh, we are off the north of the hour. So... Thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, if any one of you have any last comments, you have three seconds, okay, while I wrap up. So thanks for tuning in. If you guys want to continue to uh, learn more about what Thomas tries to say, head over to steadycompounding.com. If you want to buy Eugene's book, head over to Vision Capital. And yeah, we I will get my producer to talk to you to come on our show and talk a little bit more about your book and your investment ideologies, okay? So for everyone else that's listening, thanks for staying with us until 10.15. I appreciate it. If you want more information, come to our Telegram group, The Financial Coconut, to hang out and chat and, you know, continue your discussion. Sign up for a weekly newsletter at thefinancialcoconut.com. Okay, so all the plugs are done. I'm good for today. Any last things you guys want to add? No, I'm good. No, I'm good as well. No, we're good. We're good. Okay, again, have a good sleep. Good night, guys. Take care. Woo. I hope you learned something useful today and truly appreciate that you took time off to better your life with the financial coconut. Knowledge is that much more powerful and interesting when shared, debated and discussed. Join our community telegram group, follow us on our social, sign up for a weekly newsletter. We are doing a weekly newsletter reboot. We are going to have a lot of information within the newsletter. Everything is in the description below. And if you love us and want to help us grow, definitely share the podcast with your friends and on your socials. Also, if you have any interesting thoughts you want to share or you know someone that we would like to hear from, reach out to us through Hello at thefinancialcoconut.com With that, have a great day ahead Stay tuned next week And always remember Personal finance can be chill, clear And sustainable for all Okay, okay I also want to add that you don't need to be invested in China if it's not your thing. Everybody has their own investing style. So I want to reassure you that although we are dedicating quite a lot of time talking about China, because it is currently the hot topic, hey, you don't have to do it. Feel fine comfort in your investing strategy. But if you have a manager, you have someone that's you know doing your portfolio, always ask them what is going on, what is their thoughts and what's their perspectives and you can always bring these thoughts and questions and perspectives back onto our Telegram group. You know, to connect with us and talk to us and we can see, you know, different perspectives and come to a better, more educated decision, right? So next week, we'll have Freddie on the show to talk about the macro stuff, the higher level, higher order things. So yeah, join us next week. I see you guys. Also, uh, sign up for our weekly newsletter and also... <laughs> <laughs> Sign up for our new podcast, TFC Stock Geek Out, if you're a big fan of trying to 
pick your own stocks, learn how to invest, or even just stay relevant to whatever is happening in the markets. So TFC market updates, TFC stock geekouts will all be placed under TFC stock geekouts. So go on your favorite podcast platform and you know just give us a follow lah, like, share, subscribe lah. Huh? See ya. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.